It took about 30 years after the discovery of the two sites for all but the last diehard Clovis firsters to accede to the pre-Clovis existence of people in this hemisphere. Since then, several other pre-Clovis sites have come to light. One of these is Cactus Hill in Virginia, where small blades and other artifacts dating as far back as 15,000 to 17,000 years ago were found in a sand dune in a layer that was clearly lower than the one harboring Clovis artifacts. Another such find is a topper site in South Carolina near the Savannah River. There in the late 1990s, inspired by the Cactus Hill finds, not to mention Meadowcroft and Monteverde, Albert Goodyear of the University of South Carolina returned to a Clovis site he had excavated in the 1980s, where, having found Clovis material, he had stopped digging. Now, below the Clovis level and a 40-centimeter layer of barren soil, he found artifacts similar to those at Cactus Hill. Such artifacts, like those at Meadowcroft, suggest that these early people were generalized gatherer-hunters, taking a variety of plant food and harvesting mostly small game. So, Clovis people could not have been the first on the continent. Recent systematic attempts to locate and excavate Clovis sites led, in one instance, to eastern Texas and a large site called Galt. There, Michael Collins of the University of Texas at Austin has led an exploration of a large Clovis site located in a salubrious area in a stream valley where an abundant spring was located as well as outcrops of chert excellent for making tools and a variety of habitat and food resources. It was inhabited at least on and off for long periods, gainsaying the notion of Clovis people as always highly mobile. It suggests that the famed Clovis points were not a specialized tool for killing mammoths since they persisted in use at Galt long after mammoths had become extinct in the area. Indeed, the complexity of this Clovis home base and its associated artifacts shows that Clovis people were, much like their predecessors, generalized hunter-gatherers, taking advantage of a wide range of food resources both plant and animal. They killed the occasional mammoth and giant bison in an opportunistic way, but surely they were not responsible for any mass extinctions. They could perhaps have given the coup de gras to a few species that were already at the end of their rope,
in the rapidly changing climate and landscape. And when Clovis people, and others for that matter, actually did move their residential camps, the chances are it was the women who said it was time to go. According to a suggestion by Gary Haynes of the University of Nevada at Reno, since women were the ones mostly intimately involved with running and feeding their households on a daily basis, they would be the first to notice that good things to eat were getting scarcer near camp, or that they had to go farther and farther for firewood. Certainly, they would have had as much say in the matter as the men. It was most likely the sum total of these increasing daily inconveniences. Each inquiring more work by women that set the family in motion to seek greener pastures. The ethnographic record here too suggests that such was the case. The question arises again as a result of the ethnographic record, who were women and who were not? In our society, biological sex and social or cultural de culturally determined gender are pretty simple. Males are men and boys and females are women and girls. This goes for heterosexual, bisexual, and homosexual people. There are no male lesbians, for example. There are cross-dressers and actual transsexuals, of course, but they are relatively few and far between. Even rarer are hermaphrodites. It is also among these people that real surprises about gender are likely to occur. Genderings in 1879, explorer John Wesley Powell of the Smithsonian Institution's Bureau of Ethnography dispatched a team to travel to the American Southwest, in particular to the Zuni Reservation in western New Mexico. In doing so, he unleashed the first hand hands-on ethnographic expedition in the history of anthropology. It was led by an army man, James Stevenson, whose wife, Matilda Cox Stevenson, soon became a powerful, even overbearing, collector of the daily objects of tribal life there, but also of the customs and beliefs of the people especially the women of the Zuni tribe. Matilda was aided in learning about these customs by Wewa, who taught her the ways of Zuni women and accompanied her back to Washington, D.C. There, this Zuni princess, as she came to be called, described the female domain at Zuni to fascinated audiences. Matilda went on to publish voluminously about these matters and became the first professional woman anthropologist in the United States. What she did not know at the time was that Wei Wa, while perfectly comfortable in the women's world, was in fact what is called a man-woman. That is to say, he was biologically a man 
who lived as a woman, did the work of women, and was respected as a woman. This was a common role in several parts of Native America. Such a person is sometimes called a burdash, a derogatory term for the French, from the French, but is usually referred to as a two spirits. The term two spirits highlights the fact that in small groups and societies whose survival is not by any means guaranteed, every individual is valuable. There are simply not enough people to exclude anyone for something as unimportant as sexual orientation. Just as common in American Indian society and history were women who took on the normatively male role of hunter and or warrior. The Shurikawa Apache Vittorio is considered by military scholars to be one of the greatest guerrilla leaders in history. Having led a small band of warriors as they fought, outran, outfought, outran, and outfoxed a considerable fraction of the United States Army for more than a year. But when it came to the serious up-close fighting, his sister Lazen was considered Vittorio's equal. A principal insight of ethnographic studies is that gendering gives rise to an astonishing variety of roles beyond the purely biological. Another such insight is that quite commonly, as part of the social system, a particular society invents for itself. Gendering tends to foment complementarity and interdependence. Complementarity often means breaking down the tasks of living into those practiced by the different sexes or ages or both. Some societies have broken the tasks down not so much by sex as by the materials used, men and stone, women and shell, for example. We have little archaeological evidence like the artwork from late Paleolithic Eurasia, to help us figure out how the Paleo-Indians of North America negotiated their gender roles and leadership. Most archaeologists believe that the early Americans lived in small groups based on kinship and probably operated on the basis of strong decision-making. Or consensus. Consensus is historically how many American Indian tribes have functioned until recently. Also unhelpfully in this particular quest, most American Indian groups have shown a great deal of flexibility in assigning gender roles. So how Paleo-Indians organized all this in western Pennsylvania or Monte Verde, or even later at Blackwater Draw, remains opaque, but the very earliest. You can share your Americans had to have been adapted to life in the cold, at least seasonally, 
so some of the features of present-day cold living groups can be considered useful low however speculatively in picturing how those original of unwitting colonists may have lived.